a little while ago, you used to have to let your cat outside to do their business, just like a dog. And while they were out there, they would often grab a snack for the road, killing off local biodiversity and damaging the ecosystem in order to get a quick meal. However, after the ingenious invention of the litter box, this problem should have been completely solved. Without cats needing to go outside anymore, the potential of them preying on local animals should have been completely gone. But it's not. Last week, I talked to a man who works to solve the problem of cats preying on urban wildlife. We talk about crazy nature stories, feral cats, and so much more. I present to you, Dan Herrera. My name is Nathan, and this is At Risk. Uh, why don't you start by introducing yourself and what you do? My name is Dan Herrera. I'm a PhD student at George Mason University, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. And I study urban wildlife, specifically threats to urban biodiversity and how we can overcome those threats using collaborative policy as well as urban design. And I know when, while we were talking and conversing online, you said that a lot of your work focused on um, cats in urban wildlife. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so that's about half of my work. So I do do other things. But uh, when I say threats to biodiversity, there are kind of two main categories as I see it. And that's, there's structural and non-structural threats. Structural being things like infrastructure. So we have roads and buildings that, of course, take up habitat or fragment habitat. But we also have things that aren't necessarily stagnant. Uh, they're very dynamic in space and time. And one of those things would be invasive predators. And in cities, uh, our perhaps largest uh, invasive predator or our most prolific invasive predator is the feral cat. And so a lot of my work focuses on uh, counting cats in cities, seeing where cats are, how they select habitat, where they overlap with other species, but also their effect on the environment in terms of predation. And what specifically is a feral cat versus any other type of cat? Yeah, so there's, there's not total agreement in the nomenclature. So I colloquially say feral cat. And what I really mean by that is any free roaming domestic cat. So any cat that is not on a leash or in uh, an enclosure, often called a catio, but any, any cat that's outside is usually called a feral cat. Now people will push back and they'll say, well, I have an indoor outdoor cat or my cat's inside 90% of the time, but I let it out on the weekends, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and something important to notice or something important to note there is that it doesn't matter how often the cat is outside and it doesn't matter if it's owned or not. Anytime a cat is steps paw outside, there are risks that are put towards the cat and then that cat, cat puts risks onto the environment. Uh, and so we use the term feral cat, but really what we mean is any cat that's outside. And what's the main problem that you're focusing on? within herbal cats and wildlife? Well, it's kind of two-pronged. And it goes back to that statement I just made of anytime the cat's outside, there are threats to the cat and there are also threats to wildlife. Um, and those two issues are not mutually exclusive because they're both caused by the very fact that that cat goes outside. 
And traditionally, conservation biologists come at the outdoor cat issue only through the wildlife perspective. So we, we raise alerts about the threats to wildlife from cats. But that's not the only issue that's there. The other half of the issue is that the cat itself is also threatened. Its welfare is put at risk. And so uh, my approach to it is, is admittedly more slanted towards the wildlife, but I am also earnestly um, thinking about the well-being of the cat because I don't want to put those cats at risk either. So for the benefit of cats and wildlife, I research and advocate for cats to stay indoors. And in your most recent uh, dissertation, which you posted about on Twitter, you talked about the relationship between how cats eat native biodiversity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, cats are very efficient hunters. Uh, they are obligate carnivores, and so they need to be consuming meat. And so uh, that's what they're known for. That is the, the largest issue of cats being outside is they go out and they hunt. And one issue that we have with that is, one, they're invasive. Uh, so they're not native to these landscapes. And the, the species that they prey upon uh, did not have a chance to co-evolve with that predator. And so they're not, they don't have any defenses towards cats. And so they are essentially sitting ducks for them. Right. Uh, but the other issue there is um, because they're introduced, this predation is 100% unnecessary. We have the means to feed cats and we have the means to keep cats inside. Right. And so not only are the, the prey species being attacked without having a defense, but the attack is completely unwarranted. And what were your conclusions on how to prevent this from happening? Well, the number one conclusion we have is that cats predate more and there's a higher probability of them predating on native species the closer you get to the forest edge. But as you leave a forest edge at about 250 meters, the probability of a cat preying on a non-native or invasive rat actually surpasses the probability of a cat preying on a native species. And so from that, uh, we recommend that any sanctioned cat care, any trap neuter return program, any outdoor cats, any feeding stations should not be allowed within 250 meters of a forest uh, because that is the area where cats are killing the most and it's where cats are killing wildlife disproportionately. And how did you collect the, the data to find these results? This actually came as a spinoff of another project. We had motion activated wildlife cameras all across the city for three years. And we were trying to count the number of cats. Uh, but as we were doing this project, every time we saw a cat with a prey animal in its mouth, we pulled that aside and put it in our special predation database. And so it was a completely passive sampling protocol uh, and kind of opportunistic. So whenever a cat was observed walking around with an animal, that's when we got a, a data point for our project. And what actions can people individually take to help tackle these big problems? Number one action is to keep your cats indoors. And then second to that is to stop caring for outdoor cats. There are programs that aim to reduce cats from the landscape like trap, neuter, return that try to do so ethically and morally uh, without actually killing the cat. And as a byproduct, uh, we are just furthering cats on the landscape. We are encouraging people to let their other cats outdoors because they know that somebody else will care for it, uh, as well as we continue to put those cats at risk of things like vehicle collisions or predation by other species. So if you really care and you want to take action, don't let your cat outside and stop feeding cats outdoors. 
But doesn't feeding the cats outdoors turn them away from uh, preying on natural native wildlife? So that was another finding of our study is that actually as access to supplemental cat food increased, so did predation of wildlife. And the reason for that is likely because when you leave cat food out, you allow cats to persist at a higher density than they normally could because you're reducing territoriality. There's no longer a reason to be territorial over those resources if those resources continue to be replenished uh, and they don't actually get depleted like a prey system would. And so when we feed cats, we're allowing those populations to be artificially high. And while that might reduce individual predation levels, it actually increases the population level predation. And so leaving cat food outside actually increases predation in an area. And do you think our government can step in to fix some of these problems? I think there's definitely room uh, for governments to step in and, and do that. I think the number one way to do that is to put uh, limits on where people can feed and care for cats outdoors. I think it's an unrealistic goal or an unrealistic claim to say that a government can put out an order that everybody needs to keep their cats indoors because people don't follow those orders. Um, but if enforcement is in place on the governmental level to make sure that that isn't happening within 250 meters of a forest, which is a much more realistic goal than across the entire city, I do think there could be meaningful change enacted by governments. And now focusing on the other half of your studies, um, which for Fresher was? It's uh, my other aspects of my studies are basically how do, or not how do, but habitat selection processes in urban wildlife. So where they're choosing to stay in the landscape, uh, both on a physical structural level. So so what, you know, canopy cover or open water, things like that, that drive habitat selection, um, but also on an intangible level. So how does night, light and noise pollution impact habitat selection or habitat use? How do these studies help us learn more about the environment? Well, these studies are, are critical in a couple different ways. Uh, first being, Historically, cities have been built on this idea of pushing animals out of the city, pushing ecological systems out of the city. And we know that strong ecosystems are able to withstand uh, strong changes. They're very resilient. And so take flooding, for instance. When you push all of the ecosystem, the natural processes out of the city, and then you get a heavy rain, all the concrete and the lack of roots to get water down to the, the soil, if that's in place and you have those barriers, you've pushed the ecosystem out, uh, you're going to get a large flood. But if you allow that ecological system to persist inside the city, it's going to help the city uh, kind of take those events on uh, without really much damage. And so when we have wildlife and plants and habitat in urban areas, we, in we increase the resiliency of those areas to natural disaster and to natural fluctuations. But we also increase the well-being of human lives. We know the, the large uh, impacts of, of access to parks to people's well-being. We saw that especially during the throes of COVID when everyone was not really allowed to leave. Uh, suddenly everybody went to the park. We know that those open spaces are good for our mental health. And additionally, we know that being around biodiversity is good for our mental health. And so by encouraging and facilitating wildlife in cities, uh, yes, it's good for the wildlife, but it's also good for us. 
The other big societal impact of research like this is that with global climate change, many species are going to have to shift their range northward in order to follow ideal climate conditions. And cities often are a barrier in that migration. And so not only do we need to design cities that are capable of housing resident populations of wildlife, but we also need to have our cities have corridors where species that aren't necessarily going to stay in the city are, are able to still move through the city to get to better habitat up north so they are not uh, essentially suffocated by heat in their southern range as the, the earth continues to warm. And what architectural and engineering steps could allow for that to happen? There's a number of things we can do from kind of the small impact stuff would be uh, stop growing normal grass in your yard, uh, change your yard to native habitat. And so that allows for stopover habitat for species. Similarly in parks, if we transition to more native habitat, uh, those species will be able to persist to a greater degree. But also purposefully designating park systems to be connected and be able to be large enough that a, a large species like a bear or an elk would be able to walk through those systems without being in somebody's backyard. Because when wildlife, when large wildlife is really close to a human, that's when we see conflict. That's when we need to come in and remove that animal because there's going to be a negative outcome. But if park systems are large enough that an animal can move through the center of it without being in close contact to a human, uh, we can presumably have uh, human wildlife, or we can presumably avoid human wildlife conflict and allow those species to pass through. And before, when you were talking about this, you mentioned that a lot of the individual aspects of what you're doing requires studying individual things such as canopy cover and things like that. But how do these things help determine the results that you've been talking about? So canopy cover especially is uh, a very good kind of proxy for, for habitat availability because it tends people don't tend to plant trees over their homes. So we know if, if we see the top of a canopy, the top of a tree, uh, it is more than likely going to be at the very least impervious or sorry, pervious surface below it. It might be just normal yard or lawn, um, but at the very least an animal can can move through there. And so that is an indicator of habitat availability. And then on the flip side of that, we have indicators like impervious surface, which are things like concrete or blacktop uh, surfaces that water cannot penetrate, surfaces that an animal cannot burrow in, uh, as well as things like road density or traffic density. Uh, we can also look at human, more human-centered metrics like uh, population density or even socioeconomic values uh, to see how the city differs and because uh, all of those aspects, not necessarily all of them apply to every species, but species do select for certain uh, aspects and are able to move through the city differently depending on how those uh, different land covers are distributed. And what brought you into the world of urban ecology? Well, it's a funny, funny that you ask. I never thought I would end up here when I was an undergrad. I got a, a position, it's called a research experience for undergraduates run by the National Science Foundation in the US. And basically, they you apply for these jobs and they send you um, to a, a partner university or a partner research group. So I grew up outside of Chicago, Illinois, I was going to school outside of Chicago, Illinois. And I for the summer under this program was 
working on Barro, Colorado Island in Panama, in the Panama Canal. And I thought that was just the opportunity of a lifetime. And in many ways it was. I was out there studying white-faced capuchin monkeys. And it was really cool, but I felt um, almost bad because I would run around and, with these really cool monkeys, really cool species, in these pristine environments, beautiful tropical rainforest. And it just struck me that, yes, it's important to study these species. Yes, it's important to conserve them. But these are not the species that really need our help. These are not the species whose land is being fragmented, who are being hit by cars or um, eating poison because people are leaving it out for rats. And those are the species, those are the environments that I think not necessarily are more deserving of our help, but maybe more urgently need our help. And so it paradoxically took me traveling thousands of miles and running alongside monkeys to appreciate the value of the species that were in my own backyard. And you already kind of answered that question just now, but why do you think what you're doing is important? Is there anything else that you want to add? I do strongly believe that access to nature is a human right. And in urban areas, bearing in mind that the majority of the world's population now lives in urban areas, the park system is that primary connection to nature. And so I do firmly believe that researching how to make the best park system possible for humans and for animals alike uh, is going to have strong and far-reaching benefits that are societally critical. And to be honest, I don't think as a society we can afford not to invest more in our parks and to get adequate park design uh, because really we and wildlife depend on it. And if you have to choose one thing, is there anything, any aspect that you love the most about any of your research? Oh, I love raccoons. Um, <laughs> I love watching raccoons, uh, just observing them problem solve, observing them exploring and being curious. Um, and they're also just very, uh, when I see photos from my motion activated wildlife cameras, of mama raccoon with little babies. I just think that's the cutest thing. So anytime I can have the chance to observe raccoons, uh, I'm there. Do you have any funny wildlife stories that you'd like to mention for the show? Ooh. I don't know if it was funny, um, but working in urban environments, you tend to see some strange wildlife interactions. And I did have, uh, I, I have two things to note here. The first is I have several uh, sequences of photos of red foxes who walk into mm -hmm. people's backyards at night and play with the dog toys that are left out. Mm -hmm. So when your dog is out playing with or chewing a bone or playing with a ball and then it leaves it out there overnight, uh, a fox might come and actually play with the ball itself overnight or chew on the bone or take the bone away. Um, and then another thing that I saw that I thought was really interesting was a I saw a large white-tailed deer buck uh, walking through a corridor and it had its antlers on. It was, it was fall. It was during the rut. And it had uh, decided to spar with, I don't know, the side of a building or something, <laughs> but it had insulation, a big piece of foam insulation that would be uh, paneling on the side of a building that was under construction. Mm -hmm. It had, I guess, charged it and that was now stuck on its antlers. <laughs> so it it was completely covering its eyesight. It couldn't see, right. but it was, still, it was still walking around and presumably doing everything it needed to 
uh, despite this big piece of insulation in front of its face. And how did you come across these? Was it just like you were walking along the street and you just happened to see them or like what? So I use motion activated, motion activated wildlife cameras for my research. So I put out these cameras and I leave them there for a couple of weeks. Uh, and then I review whatever walks in front of it, it takes a picture of. And I review right. those photos once I bring those back in. So a lot of this stuff, uh, I will I will see weeks after it actually happens, if not months after it actually happens. And so there's not really like an intervention I could do. I couldn't call animal control and say, hey, there's a deer that needs help. Or I couldn't call right. a resident and say, take your dog toys in at night because they can't right. even walk away with. Um, so I see things after they happen, obviously. Um, but it also gives me kind of an intimate look into what's happening when nobody else is looking because these are interactions that humans don't normally see. And because it's in the middle of a park at the middle of the night and you're asleep. So it gives kind of a cool insight as to what happens when the rest of the city sleeps. And do you think that time delay is a detriment? <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I don't. To be honest, I think there are uh, very few things in terms of wildlife that are that pressing time-wise if it is not an endangered species. White-tailed deer, from a conservation standpoint, uh, do not necessarily need our help right now. And so even if that insulation caused that deer to die in one way or another, uh, that is not going to have population level impacts. And right. our resources are better spent going after other things. And, and so I don't think the time delay there is really to a conservation detriment. All right. And kind of the last couple of questions to wrap things up here. If you had to choose, what is one thing that you don't like about your research? Hmm. I think something that I don't like about my research is sometimes people are not willing to take it seriously because they don't think of animals that live in the city as wildlife. Uh, when I tell people I study urban wildlife, there's a lot of pushback saying, oh, well, our fox isn't wildlife. A possum isn't wildlife. That's a pest species. That's something we want to get rid of. And that's really frustrating to me because these are really incredible animals. It takes a lot for an animal to live in a, an environment like a city that we as humans have altered so much. We have stripped so much of the normal ecological processes out of these cities. And so for these species to persist is truly a testament of nature. And these are incredible species that really deserve our respect. And many, many individuals don't respect them in that way. Mm. So that frustrates me. And I really do advocate and encourage people the next time you go into your backyard, the next time you walk through a park, and you see something even as mundane as a squirrel, just kind of put down your um, your preconceived notions and just really appreciate everything that has to happen for that species to be there. It doesn't matter that you see it every day. It's still an incredible species that deserves your respect. And what do you think is the ideal future in your mind for wildlife and humanity to coexist? Mm -hmm. I think an ideal future uh, is really the path to an ideal future is through strong, intentional urban planning. When we design our cities with strong park systems in mind, we are able to arrive at situations where species are able to live and move through cities without coming into negative contact with humans. So I think uh, strong park planning, strong urban planning, as well as uh, strong legislation in terms of things like banning feeding outdoor cats uh, near forest edges or controlling how pest species are eradicated uh, 
that is the path to an ideal future in terms of human wildlife uh, cohabitation in cities. And as the last question, what would you say to anybody who wants to get involved into any of these issues that you're talking about? What's the best course of action? That's a great question. I think these issues are interesting to study from an international perspective. You, you can definitely find a lot of studies or information from other cities, but if you want to get involved, I would say the best thing to do is to reach out to your local parks department, to your local conservation department, your local natural history museum, uh, any institution in your area that works with conserving animals. Uh, maybe you don't think of your hometown as an urban area, but unless you're living in the middle of nowhere, uh, if you're living in the suburbs or even just a subdivision, kind of an exurb, you lived in a you live in a developed area, and there's going to be a need for conservation around you that presumably some organization is already trying to fill. So reach out to them, get involved with them. They're going to know the best path forward to conserving species in your area. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. But thank you so much for taking some of your time to chat with me today. And uh, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find Dan on Twitter at Herrera Wildlife and us at At Risk Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed that episode, be sure to check out our other urban wildlife episode with Jacinta Humphrey and birds. Also, make sure to share the show with some friends. You guys are our marketing team, and I cannot stress enough how much every little bit means to me. If you want to get in touch, feel free to leave a message using our voice message link in the show notes below. Also, just as another announcement, I'm not completely sure how consistent the schedule will be moving forward, but I'm going to try my best to keep the episodes flowing. That's all I have to say for this week, so go outside, enjoy the start of spring, and more importantly, enjoy nature.